So that's just a, a sign of what, what we can expect today. Soraya, make it. What happened? <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I have no idea what happened, but I'm going <laughs> to assume it was something kooky. Yeah, something kooky happened. Hey, Jeff. Do you remember this? I do remember that. Okay. Is that you is that may the... remember this. Okay, this is the original. Oh, you're going way back. Then we got a 40 anniv 40th anniversary release. Yep, and Rock. Then, hold on. But wait, there's more. There's... Then you remember this? That's oh, original. Really? Yeah. I, I think my mom told me about that before I was born before you were born well you know i i uh then everyone can put together who's older than who and then we got a 40th edition beauty of salvation army that looks gorgeous that so looks i'm oh, guessing no, wait, wait, that... there's more oh my gosh Ooh. hold on hold on are, are you gonna show vinyl i am gonna show vinyl it looks like that kind of show it just got like just a sneak peek. Look at this beauty. Oh, beautiful gold, vinyl. Golden amber. Golden amber. It sounds looks like an great. ale. Sounds like a good band name. <laughs> golden amber. You know, golden earring, golden amber. Nice. So uh, does, does all of this have anything to do with the discussion we're having today? It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Just kidding. Yes, it has everything to do. For our listeners, Jeff, let them know who is joining us today and well, to I, talk about what. Yeah. So I think we need a little bit of help. So we're bringing back our wonderful co-host, Ronnie Barnett. Yep. Um, always such a big help to us. And we always enjoy having him around. It's a party when Ronnie's around. Always. But in the hot seat, we have a couple members from that band, Salvation Army, Michael Coercio, the bassist and lead singer, primary songwriter, and Greg... Luis Gutierrez, uh, who played guitar. So if I'm not mistaken, Soraya, I believe that this is the first time that the two of them are on a Zoom meeting together. So this is quite special. Um, yeah. Other than, yeah, yeah, that's what that's that's what I've heard from Michael. So um, very interesting. And uh, we invited Troy to join us, but unfortunately, he's not able to make it. So two thirds of the band we'll be here to talk about this reissue and um, we might dig a little bit uh, into their past and how they all got together and um, a little bit about what happened with um, the name. So we know that they had, uh, we heard, we've heard uh, on a couple occasions, a little bit about what the hap what happened with that. But since we're talking Salvation Army, we'll go there and who knows what Ronnie's going to bring up. We, <laughs> we never know. So um, we've done very little to prepare for this uh, as far as working with Ronnie. So on this particular topic, so we'll see, you'll never, you never know what we're going to get. So looking forward to hearing from Michael and Greg Lewis and uh, about Salvation Army. Absolutely. So let's get started. Hi, this is Soraya. And this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agrubiar. Let's get groovy. That means it's happening. All right, Sarah, you want to get us started? Yes. So for all our listeners, 
Uh, joining us today, guest host Ronnie Barnett, but also two members of Salvation Army, Michael Curcio and Luis Greg Gutierrez. So thank you all. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> look at that beauty. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> I hold this up because Yeprock re-released this. It was a 40th anniversary re-release of the single, uh, Happen Happen, Four Hours, Fight Song. And then they gave us this. And it was a, another anniversary re-release of the Salvation Army. Uh, yeah, with that little curious. Yeah, and those of the us contrast. in the know. The contrast in colors. This is the new version. It's darker. Yeah. Is the new version yeah. darker? Yeah, yeah, it's a little darker. See that? Oh, See wow. them side oh, by right. side? Yeah. Interesting. But uh, the back? Uh that's the new back. So yeah, it's a little. Let's do let's you do know the contrast. Where that picture was taken. Do you see the picture? Yeah. That's from a backyard in Hollywood. What was Mary? Her name was Mary. She's famous. She's like a photographer or something. Mary Lewis. That was the night that El Duce threw up on me. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it's the same night. Intentionally. Later on, Ed Culver took us to the backyard to take pictures after I got the the, the vomit off of my shoes. Well, interestingly, uh, I got a text message from Ed Culver last night, oh. and, uh, and I told him about this record, uh, and he said, I, did they use the, my handprint? So it's a photograph of us standing behind a door, but then he put his handprint over the, somehow over the image. So what you see is a hand revealing us standing behind a door. Oh, that's oh yeah. Oh, wow. I never noticed that before. You can see, yeah, the lines of his hand. That. Yeah, wow. So Ed Gover was like, did they, did they use my, did they use, he described the picture in great detail. And uh, he goes, you know, I don't have a copy of that. I wonder, you think Lisa has the original and she'd give it back to me? No. Yeah. I mean, it's there. It's, 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 it's reprinted the same. Must, but must have it unless it's somewhere sitting at Bond for a hundred years. Right. Wow. Wow. So Michael was freshly thrown up on by El Duce in this photo. Yeah, it was, it was in the Ed Culver's handprint. He, he was sitting at my feet. <laughs> You know, like, uh, like, uh, you know, like I was the Mar Rishi or something, and then he threw up on me. So and I, Lewis, I don't know. He, Lewis, he said that out his throat and, and intentionally threw up on Michael's beetle boots. <laughs> no, no, no. They weren't beetle boots. They were like these cool kind of like school kid shoes I got at the thrift store or something. Something with corns or something. But yeah. anyway, they were they were cool. Lewis, can you share with our listeners how you came to be a part of the band? Sure. Um, uh, I feel like I'm having deja vu. <laughs> uh, all over again. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I was introduced to Michael and Troy through a mutual friend. Um, I had been in uh, two punk rock bands. One was uh, the Ozzy Hairs, which had a famous skateboarder as our lead singer, Tony Alva from Dogtown and his brother. <laughs> and the, and the uh, the drummer in the band, or his brother was a lead guitar player, and the the drummer was Emil, and he ended up in Black Flag later, um, and that was the Ozzy Hairs, and it was it was total punk. Uh, I think I knew like I knew bar chords, and I knew one open chord at that time. I knew nothing about the guitar, and uh, but once I learned that you could play a bar chord, you could play any song that was ever written. It opened up a whole new world for me, and uh, we were in that band for. I was in that band for about a year, I guess, and 
And then we kicked Tony out of the band and Mark uh, wanted to be the singer and somehow I just left. Um, but what's memorable about that is our very first show ever was in San Pedro opening for, and I'm pretty sure it was the Minutemen and uh, Black Flag and Circle Jerks Wow, in San Pedro. And then later I was introduced to the Stern Brothers from Better Youth Organization and they had a band called Youth Brigade and uh, and so I I was invited to join their band and um, again another pretty hardcore punk band and we would play at like you know all of the sort of punk rock haunts of the day it's a lot of fun um, but at some point I just kind of decided I didn't really like their music that much and it was around that time that I was introduced to Michael so I went and met him at his house where they they rehearsed in Michael's garage and I I guess it was an audition. And uh, um, I got the gig. I want to ask about the Ozzy Harris again for a second. So Tony yeah. Alva was a big star then, correct? At that time, he really was. Yeah. Yeah. I, Did that I, lead to any interesting like gigs or experiences? Well, I was, growing up, I I was I was um, I was a big skateboarder and a surfer because uh, I grew up in the South Bay, and uh, so I I was at the 1976 World Championships where I saw Tony Alva win the whole thing. Wow. And uh, so he was sort of an idol of mine. So it was a real, it was a real treat to be in a band with this guy that I looked up to for so long, but only really knew from the cover of Skateboarder magazine. And, and uh, I mean, this is long before Dogtown was glorified yeah. and glamorized in movies and stuff like that. But so these guys are pretty gritty. He was a great guy. He was a little crazy. We did a lot <laughs> of crazy stuff. Um, we went skateboarding quite a bit when I was in that band. Wow. That was a real treat for me. Like, you know, we'd find empty swimming pools and we'd hop over the fences and go skating in the in the pools. And I learned a lot about skating from him because he pretty much invented, you know, pool riding and yeah. Stacy Peralta and Jay Adams and people like that from Santa Monica. So yeah, that was really a lot of fun. And that was that was because I guess I got to punk rock because I uh, I got kicked out of my high school which was Narbonne High School in uh, Lomita. And I was given the opportunity to transfer to San Pedro and sitting uh, in the back of the class in my second period English class was a guy who was a transfer student from Japan who was wearing, he had a Sid Vicious locket on, his hair was all spiked out. He wore black leather pants with chains on him. And I, he, to me, he was a freak because I was still a surfer at that point. And my hair was super long. And I remember him wearing a swastika shirt uh, into the classroom and it wasn't really that big of a deal and uh, uh, until it was and then he would just cover it up but he introduced me to punk rock and that's how I got into to really got into my first band and got into music and all that and so but but Salvation Army was attractive to me because their music was very much rooted in in the punk scene I knew yeah. of the band the sound was there John Blazing was a great guitar player he had a great uh, tone Michael was more it was sort of like a Buzzcocks version of um, of, uh, of punk rock, you know. It was melodic and yeah. harmonic, and it had it had hooks. So it was it was very easy for me to be attracted to that music. Michael, what happened to John Blazing? What? Um, why didn't he work out? And then what did he go on to do? After okay, uh, uh, John. I met John through a little uh, that paper called the Recycler, where you would put out little ads and things and. And he was my age in my grade. He was a senior at Pedro High. I was at Carson High. And Lewis went to Carson High for a week, he told me once. 
didn't you? Something like that, but I didn't like it. And then you said, I'm not staying here. Anyway, uh, um, he came over. Uh, he drove over to my house in Carson from Pedro, Johnny. And uh, it's funny, we had both come. He was all, you know, his head or his hair was spiked and and he was, you know, he, he was dressed like, you know, all punk and it was, and uh, beforehand, he was like me. We were both in like cover bands. We had both come from cover bands doing, you know, Blue Oyster Cold and Led Zeppelin and, and all, you know, all that stuff. And we had learned our chops doing that, you know. And so we kind of bonded by, we had both gotten out of that, cut our hair and, and you know, went punk rock. And uh, we couldn't find a drummer. We did, him and I would sit and I'd show him my songs and stuff. And, and we had Troy come and audition because Troy went to my high school, Carson. And uh, I saw him one day where just dressed, uh, I had known him a couple of years before when I first started and he had long hair and everything. And then like by the time a couple of years later, I see him at school and I didn't even know it was him. He, he's got short hair and he's dressed like one of the specials. And I'm like, who's that guy? And under his arm is the Jam's Setting Suns album. And I'm like, who are, oh my God, it's Troy. And I'm like, wow. And she told me that he played the drums. And anyway, he comes over and Johnny and I and the three of us play and it just didn't work. He he played the drums, but I think it was, he's, he was only playing for like three days before he came over. And uh, he tried some other people and nobody wanted to play with us. Nobody anywhere would play with Johnny and me. So Johnny goes, call Troy again. So Troy came back and he had been rehearsing and he could play. And, and so there we were. And uh, we went and recorded that demo of those four songs right over here. I was walking home from school and saw this recording studio. Um, and we went in there, pulled our money together and went in and made those four songs. And uh, played around and I saw Lewis, we played a show with Lewis when he was in the Youth Brigade um, at Alpine Village and and uh, Dee Boone sees us play live, wants to hear our demo, wants to put out two of the songs. And then Johnny Blazing wants to leave. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> and uh, he wants to leave. And Troy told me later that that he was driving with just him and Johnny. And Johnny's like, we got to get a singer. And, and Troy's like, what? And Johnny's like, yeah, I want to get a screamer. I want to be in a punk band. And Johnny would tell me, you know, you're getting too musical. I guess what you're saying, you know, I got out of all that, the Beatles and this and that. I, you know, I, I got out of that because I want to be in a punk band. And now you're, you know, moving away from that you know he wanted to be in black flag you know and uh so even with all that stuff happening for us he's like i'm leaving and so there we were with the single coming out and no guitar player and uh so the drummer of a uh, peer group who was his older brother was the drummer of george hurley from the minutemen his girlfriend whose name was anna or something like that um she knew lewis and said, she just, she called me. I don't even know how she got married. She goes, Michael, I have the guy for your band. I'm going to call him and give, give him your number. Is that okay? And it was Greg. She goes, he just said, his name is Greg. And uh, so, and then that's, that's how it happened. So what did you think of Greg Lewis when he came in to, <laughs> to audition? Um, well, I'd say I didn't know uh, 
I think I think you were in that band Youth Brigade. And and I, I was trying to remember them because I she was saying, you know, we had we had talked on the phone, he was gonna come over, and I was like, I remembered the Stern brothers, and I thought maybe you were one of the Stern brothers, you know, from looking on the stage. And then he drives up in a little Volkswagen, he gets out of the car and and you know, he wasn't like some geeky guy or anything. He was very cool. So it was like, and I thought like, you know, a rock and roll band has to look like a rock and roll band. And in a way that was more important than how you play, really, because you can learn how to play, but you can't learn how to, you know, look cool. <laughs> Maybe, but it wasn't as easy. And uh, so it was like, he came in and, you know, he could play and we needed a guitar player. And uh, so there we were. Well, what kind of guitar did you have on that audition, Lewis? Uh, it was an SG. Uh, it nice. was my first electric guitar that I ever had. Uh, it was, you know, middle 70s, sort of an unremarkable guitar, but I still have it. Um, wow. And uh, uh, yeah, I got it when I was 15. A mid-70s and... SG is worth like three grand by the way, but anyway, go on. <laughs> well, it must have been, been stolen at some point because the time by the time I bought it in a pawn shop, the serial number had been sawed off the back of the headstock. <laughs> a, a little metal plate there. <clears throat> but I didn't care. It was 300 bucks and I needed an instrument. And, um, <clears throat> and but I do remember, I was thinking about it, hearing Michael talk. Um, I'm pretty sure I had a, a, an Ampeg. It may have been a V4 or it had a, it was, it had a very unique sound. It was like a, a Marshall style cabinet with an Ampeg head. And that's so if you listen to the sound of that guitar, it's pretty tinny. There's not a lot of distortion. I think if if there is distortion, it it was from the amp, not necessarily from a pedal. I don't think wow. I had a pedal back then. Um, do you remember what kind of amp it was, Michael? It, it, it was a, it was like a stack, it was like a half stack, I believe, of something. It was an ampeg. Yeah, that's what I thought. But you you didn't like it. You bought some equipment from Johnny Blazing. Did I? You because Johnny would still come over when you were when you were uh, playing with us for some reason. I don't know if he was keeping his amp there or something. And did we call your amp the leaning tower of something? Or, yeah, there was something. Yeah, something about something it. I used to make fun of it or something. And yeah, because it was on wheels. It was it was a case. There was a it was a cabinet, and there were only three wheels. Or one of the wheels had been it had been dropped on the edge, and so it had been pushed up into the cabinet a little bit. So it leaned. It leaned. leaning tower. That's right. I had forgotten that. That's hilarious. But he comes in with like a Gibson SG, which is like you know Alice Cooper plays Gibson SGs. You know the guy had he clearly had equipment. You know. It was happening. Angus Young is the yeah, famous. I was gonna uh, say, yeah, I was going to say ACDC. So, <laughs> Lewis, um, I've told you this before, but I I have three um, guitar heroes that really influenced me. Ace Frehley was the guy that got me into playing music, and Peter Buck kind of developed my style. And I've learned so many Three O'clock songs that you are definitely a huge influence on on me as a player and. Michael, this will lead to a question that I have for you, which is obvious. But Lewis, who who are your guitar heroes that influenced you? Uh, I, you know, the the first name that comes to mind is Steve Howe from Yes. Um, he's you know he's a very articulate guitar player, very deliberate. Not a lot of just you know r r rambling solos. He seemed very deliberate in the way that he played. 
and his parts were always sort of thought out, somewhat orchestral. If you go back and listen to a lot of his stuff, and he, I love classical music, and he he did Mood for a Day, and he did a couple of other acoustic songs along the way. I knew I could never play like him, but I sure loved listening to the way he played. So I'd have to say he was probably the single biggest influence. But you know, later it was Robbie Krieger from The Doors, and wow. and um, obviously George Harrison, uh, John Lennon for Attitude. You know, it's like it's hard, to, it's hard to pinpoint it to one, but it really did. I think it kind of started with yes, because my I'm I'm four years younger than my next oldest sibling, and I'm the youngest of five. So I was born in 1962. So in the 1970s, when I'm 10 and 12 and 14, they're listening to all of these British super arena rock bands and the Rolling Stones, of course, and all the bands that were really popular, the Eagles. So I didn't grow up with punk rock music. I really did kind of grow up with um, with arena rock and very large. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know how else to listen to music because I didn't have a record player. My brothers did. I just listened to whatever they listened to. Oh. Yeah. So, Michael, same question. What, Who influenced your bass playing and your songwriting and singing style? A little stab on his mention of arena rock. You know, Lewis and I were both at Cal Jam, too. Oh, <laughs> Ontario Fairground. Together? You guys went together? Or? No, 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 no. He no, no. just said he was there, and I, and I was there with a bunch of friends. From, I was still in junior high, and obviously he was too, but uh, yeah. I didn't have any older brothers. I had older cousins that would give me um give me their records, and we'd go to Ohio to visit them, and that's how I got all the Bowie records and all that sort of stuff, and uh, Todd Rundgren. My one cousin used to hang out with Todd Rundgren when he'd come to Cleveland, so Wow. Yeah, that influence and and I was always buying records as a little kid, a little forty-five, and then I then one summer I went with my dad to visit his relatives in Massachusetts, and I met my cousin Peter, who like was two years older than me. I was thirteen, he was fifteen. He had a motorcycle. He was like he was like uh, uh, you know I don't know whatever seventies movie star on steroids. Uh, <laughs> and he had uh, uh, he was Matt Dillon on steroids. He looked like Matt Dillon, and he drove a motorcycle. And he had um, the most amazing record collection already. And I was so impressed that when I went home, I had to have Kiss Destroyer. I had to have Aerosmith Rocks. I had to have everything that I saw him have in his in his collection. And uh, and then I met a kid in school whose older brother was into this band called T-Rex and he would go on and on about this band T-Rex and, and uh, I got into them and I started collecting their records like you would collect comic books and and we'd go to concerts and then on the radio he told me you got to listen to the station Carol too there's this DJ at night that plays and that's where I started hearing the Sex Pistols and, and so I had to have all those records and I'd get rides from my dad up to Hollywood to buy the 45s and 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 so here I am. So uh, how did you? Oh, here I sorry. am. How, how did you? <laughs> how did you gravitate to uh, playing bass, though, Michael? Because I I asked my father for a bass when I was fourteen, but I'm as we all know, most kids want to play guitar or drums. Um, I I was in junior high school in the, I guess it was the eighth, the seventh grade, or and um, I'm in this a music appreciation class. I had signed up for this. You know that sounds easy. It was the most boring <laughs> thing on earth. It was like. It was purgatory, positively purgatorial. 
I, I took that same class at Narbonne High School. Wow. The second day, I was like, God <laughs> help me, this teacher. thing is horrible. All of a sudden, through the door in the middle of class comes this, this, this teacher from down the way and it's like, I need people to play in the orchestra. Anybody here want to be in the orchestra? The class is the same, same as this one, you know, this same uh, uh, time and everything. You just have to switch doors or whatever. And right away, I was like, anything to get out of here. So um, I remember, and then we walked in to the new class and everybody's playing the violin or something. And he's like, well, what do you want to play? And I'm like, I mean, I'd never thought about playing the violin. And he goes, then he goes, why don't you play the viola? It's like a tenor violin, like a big fatter violin. So I go, okay, if that gets me out of that crummy class, I'll play whatever you want me to play. So I started playing the viola and I thought it was cool. And I started learning how to read. And then I met, like I said, I met my rock and roll friend who was in that orchestra. And he's like, you got to play bass, man. We got to start a band and you got to play bass. So I switched over to the big classical bass with the bow. Mm -hmm. And and then from there, my dad got me a, a, an electric bass. And that's where that started. Wow. So your style is, you're very melodic in your playing. I'm, cla I'm classically trained. Oh. <laughs> well, technically <laughs> yeah yeah junior high level classically trained exactly <laughs> but yeah but a lot of bass players will just hold down um or maybe stay on the root note or do a fifth but don't talk about me like i'm not here jeff all right <laughs> i learned i got a little music teacher apart from being in the orchestra and both of them really taught me about the bach like mel bay you know the oh oh yeah the, ronnie the the bach oh yeah the, yes. the scales and yep. then when i learned the scales it just opened me up and when i started listening to paul mccartney i was like it's all scales it's scales man yeah so i started <laughs> learning them and i was like and then when i was in bands i was like getting bored with going thump 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 and so i would just throw the scales in and that's that nice <laughs> uh, getting back to salvation army um as we know, Johnny Blazing had the punk name. Uh, Michael, you were also Ricky That's Stark. That's his real name. Oh, what? Oh, really? And my, and my oh. little friend from school's name was Jimi Hendrix. So I'm always surrounded by people <laughs> with really cool names. That was his real name. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Johnny Blazing. Well, John Blazing. Was, wow. It's actually just a German name, Blazing. So a born punk rocker. Okay. Yeah, well, you decided to go under Ricky Stark. Uh, why, why did you decide to have a, to go well, under that I, name? I didn't like myself. I didn't like my name. Who could say queer, queer CO, queer CO, whatever. And uh, um, so I thought that sounded punk rock or cool or something. And it didn't last long. Okay. But uh, it's by the yeah, time yeah. But by the time of the album, did you were you like okay, we're getting serious now. I'm gonna go under my real name. Yeah, and you know, it, it, and everybody was making fun of me. So. <laughs> You know, and, and Lewis, no, sorry. Right when, right when Lewis joined is when Lisa Fancher called me from Frontier Records, like, you want to do an album? Because she loved that 45 that right. the women put out. And uh, and then uh, that happened real quick right afterwards. Yeah, how? so you hear from her, and then how, how long does it take to get in the studio? Gosh, she put us in the studio. Because she was like, are you ready? Do you guys have an album's worth of material? And of course, I... I instinctively, even as a little kid, always knew to bullshit and say, yeah, of course, you know, <laughs> I didn't have any songs, you know, I did, but I could, you know, I figured, you know, I'll just write them real quick. But uh, 
Yeah, but I said, oh, yeah, we're ready. Yeah, I was good. I was really good at that. Kind of, you know, that sixth sense for, you know, bullshitting people. So. <laughs> Isn't that what rock and roll all is anyway? You know, it's just, Abs- it's just bullshit. You, know? <laughs> you still you still got it. Um, <laughs> now, now, who? Um, OK, the producer is H.B. Lovecraft. Uh, who Who was that? Lewis? His name was Tom Wilson, and he had uh, produced other records for Frontier Records. Uh, he uh, he had done the Adolescence, and uh, he may have done the first Circle Jerks record. I forget, um, but he didn't like me, and he didn't like Troy, and he didn't like the result of that record, so he didn't want his name associated with it. And uh, that's why uh, I'm sure it was Lisa who came up with the name uh of the producer but he he just didn't want anything to do with the record because he didn't like the product lewis did you like working with him in the studio i don't have a strong recollection of that you know it all happened so quickly i think we did all of the basic tracks all of the guitars drums bass in two days and i think the vocals were all done on the third day and overdubs and like the keyboards that i played and that michael played I'm pretty sure it was all done in three days so wow. i didn't I know I don't have a sense of him at all. Um, I don't have a sense of it being a particularly, uh, you know, a lot of tension in the studio. At okay. least, um, you know, it was just it all happened so quickly. Uh, I was just just glad to be there and terrified at the same time. So what what Lewis, studio was it? Because there's no there's no credit on the record for where it was, it was recorded. On- uh, well, if you, you take, if you take the Melrose exit off of Hollywood Freeway heading north, you'd make a right turn. And right there in that first block was the studio. And it you was on Heliotrope. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think it was called the Mad Hatter or something like that. Or... Hmm. Later on, years later, I went to like some rave, like some big rave thing or something in the later 80s. And it was that studio it was all gutted. And I was like, wait a minute, I've been here before. Wow. And it was that studio. It was a really big professional studio. It was a big, big place. It wasn't some little storefront or something. Right. No, it's true. It was large. Mm-hmm. It had a large tracking room. It had a bathroom that was great for vocals. I sang in the bathroom because I had read that Mary McGregor did Torn Between Two Lovers. And- <laughs> That she insisted on singing in the bathroom and 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 like others like Jim Morrison sang in the bathroom. So you gotta understand her. I wasn't playing with a full deck, but uh, <laughs> so I decided that I had to um sing in the bathroom. So there I was singing in the bathroom. Nice. And then he Tom Wilson, of course, he was mad about that. He was he was angry about that, but I insisted. So Mary yes. McGregor, big influence on the Salvation Army. Yeah. You, you heard it here first. Yeah. Lewis, I was wondering about the the songwriting process when Michael brought in these songs and relatively quick, I guess, after Lisa um, invited you guys to record an album. What were your thoughts about his songs and how what was your input into like writing the guitar parts? Were you just playing along with what Michael had or? No, uh, he, he would because he didn't play guitar well or much at all. Uh, he and he was very good at scales and and writing on the bass and he wrote all all the songs on the bass um he he would fill in all those holes instead of just resting on the root note 
one, four, five or whatever, he would fill in all these gaps. And so that's what he would present to me, if I remember correctly. And, and at that time I was discovering, you know, disc, discordant sounds and dissonant sounds and open strings. And uh, so I would just find a way to make my guitar chords conform to what he was doing. So there wasn't there wasn't a strong sense of of major or minor chords, but there's a lot of open uh, chords that ring out. You can hear it if you listen to the guitar playing. Um, uh, so I I would just listen to the songs, learn the songs, and just come up with parts along the way that I thought complemented what he was doing, and also complement the vocal at the same time. It was kind of, it was it was a very interesting process from the very beginning. Nice. So I guess we should mention the band name that didn't last too long. I mean, it didn't last too long after this album or even before the album came out. Well, I, we, were, we couldn't think of a band name. And I thought, well, if Red Cross can be Red Cross, let's be the Salvation <laughs> Army. Or good, it's not a better than Goodwill. So I wanted, be, <laughs> I wanted to be some charitable organization, too. So I thought Red Cross was good. We didn't think Red Cross was cool, you know. So right. um, it's interesting you say that, Mike, because. We could have been St. Vincent de Paul, right? But <laughs> now like a really hot female guitar player named St. Vincent. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you were way ahead of your time, my friend. Yeah. And, uh, and it had the word army in it. And all the punk bands were army something or, you know, or war. Red something. army. And so it just yeah. sounded black okay. flag. And, uh, and it didn't dawn on me that it belonged to somebody else, you know, I mean, hello, but, um, yeah. Uh, uh, and the Lisa never brought that up either. Like, no. Uh, yeah. No. It was like, which is odd because you can record companies say, yeah, she never, you know, she made that record cover with the big title on it. Yeah. And, and the yeah. only reason the organization saw us, knew about us, is because there was a big uh, sign on the whiskey. We were, you know, Salvation Army and I forget who else, the Bangs. Or... I thought it was 45 Grave. Was a forty-five gray where it's yeah they where they found. They I found photographed them. that. So the big marquee. Yeah. yeah, but that also speaks to the the thinking, the ambition of the band was not grand, right? So we it, the very by very virtue of the fact that Michael is saying, you know, Red Cross, why not the Salvation Army? Never thinking that we would get their attention just goes to show you that we weren't really thinking beyond the garage garage parties uh, and that sort of thing. Alpine Village came along. Rodney Bangenheimer came along and it all just sort of blossomed in a very fast way, like in a very short amount of time. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's in hindsight, it's obvious that they would come to us and say, you can't use our name. How long after the record came out, did you hear from the Salvation Army? Uh, 80, 80, it may have been late in 82, maybe 83. I mean, a few months, like, uh, what yeah, was the album was, out like a while or? before Danny Benair had joined? So it was like it was like June, like June '82. Yeah, we were we were performing at the Dancing Waters in San Pedro, uh, which was, was a big punk rock and alternative music club back in the early '80s. And the guy, the lawyer, came up to me backstage and handed me the letter telling us to stop using the name. And I was, it was very disoriented. It's almost like, you know, you're getting your car stolen and you like wonder where, where did I put my car? I've had my car stolen before. It was really un, uh, unsettling and, and disorienting to have a guy in a suit walk up and basically hand you a, a very legal looking letter 
telling you to cease and desist using that name, the Salvation Army. It just, it took a minute to sink in. I would imagine, wow. yeah. You know, didn't see it coming. So in our last couple of minutes before we leave, I uh, wanted to talk a little bit, um, Ronnie noticed the differences in the cover. There's some also some other differences in the record. Isn't that right, Ronnie? That's right. I, I, I didn't bring it up, but yeah, Jeff, there, there is. Um, uh, the, uh, I'm listening to it, and I know this record very well. I've listened to it over the years. And uh, yeah, uh, Mind Gardens comes on. It's immediately jarring to me because uh, it's the single version, which sounds diff a lot different than the album version. Um, uh, who dropped the ball at Yep Rock on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know. It just it just kind yeah. of got it got past the senses. <laughs> I don't know if it happened at the factory or what, but. So you're getting the first ever time on an LP, the 45 single version of Mind Gardens. So, and that so doesn't have to happen again because this was a very limited release. So, uh, right. Instant collectors on it. So th there you go. We'll look at it as being special. It's a limited edition. Did, <laughs> did you know this was album was getting reissued, Lewis? No, I didn't. <laughs> uh, Where's I, your I, copy? Do you have your copy handy? Me? Yes. No, I don't. No, I don't have a copy. Uh, Danny Benair reached out to somebody at, at Yep Rock, and apparently they it's in the mail. Oh. Uh, <laughs> now that I've spoken with Ed Culver, uh, I'm going to try and get him a couple of copies too, because I know he'd really like to have it. He's a, he's a very interesting guy. I mean, if you he, he's he's working on his third photojournalism book of uh, punk rock and um, and just uh, alternative music in the LA scene from like. I don't know, late 70s, all the way through bands like Poison and Rat and bands wow. like that. I mean, he was really right there all the time. And he there were other photographers that were that were as present, but nobody as sort of penetrating as Ed Culver was. And I've been to his house. He lives in Highland Park. Uh, his first book is called Blight at the End of the Funnel. And he's just an odd dude. I mean, he's sort of like a photographic version of Howard Finster, if you know that reference. Yeah, so, absolutely. All right. R.E.M. artist. Yeah, yeah, he's a really unusual guy, but he's a hell of a nice guy. I just ran into him at a restaurant about 10 years ago, and I'm wearing a business suit because that's what I do these days. And I'm like, Ed? And he's and he's super tall. He's probably like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, and it was as if we just never stopped talking to each other. It had been like 25, 30 years. Wow. So, um, I, I, yeah. I, 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 I deviated from the question, but uh, I hope I answered it. No, no, no. Well, Ed's well, name is on all sorts quickly. of records. It, it came out very quickly it was like we got to get this done if it's going to come on a record store day or whatever and and uh and i just kind of said okay 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 and made these decisions and and then so getting a hold of everyone and kind of getting them involved just it didn't it didn't happen for, for the salvation army oh getting back to that rock no yeah uh, yeah i i generally am and removed from those types of conversations and decisions. I leave it to uh, the keeper of the flame, Mr. Danny Benair. And uh, and I mean that with all sincerity and respect, you know, and admiration, but he really, you know, he, he is. And he introduced us to Yep Rock and he's involved in those types of decisions. More so, way more than I am. 
Well, it looks like we only have a few seconds left, and I really wanted to thank you guys again for coming back. Um, we didn't mention that this is we're doing we're, it's a redo since uh, <laughs> the first version didn't record. So the red light is on. The recording light is still it's on, right? Indeed. But I wanted to thank you guys <laughs> so much for coming on. Thank you, Ronnie, and thank you, Lewis, and Mike both. Thank you for thank you guys. Great seeing you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so very thank very you. much. Yeah. And we recorded this time. Yay! Thank God. Well, let's talk again next Wednesday, anyway, huh? <laughs> this is fun. Thank, Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank All right. you. I Bye, you guys. Yeah. Bye. Never forget again. Bye. -bye. I'm going to record even when we don't want to be recorded. So the guys going to record all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Two quotes. Two that yeah. stood out. It's all scales. It's all scales, man. Who knew? That Michael Curcio could synthesize playing rock music too. It's all scales, man. Who knew? Well, uh, all bass players, Soraya. No. Jesus. <laughs> if I had known that, I would have continued with my with my yeah. music class. That I I, know, I felt bad. I wanted to apologize to you, Soraya, for all the technical stuff we got into there. But no, um, I liked it. I liked it because I had a question. But yeah. the other quote that I wanted to bring up is. Uh, from Ronnie Barnett, and he goes, "You heard it here, folks. Uh, Mary McGregor influence on the Salvation Army." <laughs> <laughs> okay, but my question here for the two of you, since you guys play, is the point that Lewis brought up about the distortion coming from the amp and not from a pedal. I thought, I mean, is that pretty much general for punk rock? I mean, remember, I am, I don't know nothing about nothing. But it, is that pretty much the essence? Well, I'm barely a notch above what uh, you, Soraya, when it comes to <laughs> tech, knowing technical stuff about this. But um, but if you hear a hum in your amp, you start checking chords and pedals and yeah, whatever. So that's all there is to that. Like that's why he said it wasn't the pedal because he checked the pedal. So there's some hum in his amp, which again, you're not you're only gonna hear that between songs, right? When you're playing like loud guitar, right. You're not going to hear that hum. Um, Got it. But I didn't know but, uh, if he was talking about that or actually like the the gain or overdrive. So to give it that little grittiness, I don't know a whole lot about that either. I mean, yeah. everybody that I know intentionally wants distortion, so they get a, a pedal that says distortion right, right on it. Right. But I know um, D Boone, for example, he would do all treble and turn down all of his bass, and it would overdrive, so it would have that. It would break up the sound of the guitar so it wouldn't sound clean yeah. it would have that little bit of distortion but there's that part of I, it too, so. i would have kim do the the dials on on whatever amp yeah uh i was using so yeah my buddy does that for me too so i'm kind but, of the yeah 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 you, but it's interesting you mentioned all the trouble and the clean because lewis and him talking about steve howe and stuff they're, they're all clean guitar players right they're not those guys don't play through a lot of distortion and stuff and, right and um you know um like i said well as the listeners know at this point, that was that was round two, um, and uh, yeah, in the in the uh, talking about talking about Steve Howe, like I, I said in the first one, that like he's actually in, more influential on punk than you know. Like uh, one of the biggest Steve Howe disciples is Bob Stenson from the Replacements, and if you listen to the Replacements, you'll hear it now, Jeff. Listen to his solos; it's pure Steve wow. Howe licks. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Let's listen to some yeah. Replacements tonight. You'll you'll see what I mean. Wow. Um, 
But uh, I'm glad the guys agreed to do it again, right, you guys? Because uh, yes, you know, we got some stuff out of them today. We didn't get in the first one, and there's some stuff in the first one that that you know we didn't get today. But but I think we uh, get the important parts. Um, yeah, I feel like the second session actually went over a little bit better. So like, you yeah, said, no, no, I I do too. I do if too. If we do this every Wednesday, by the time we get to the summer, <laughs> we're, gonna have, we're gonna have this nailed down with Salvation Army. So I think so and too. Don't forget, and don't forget. The best vocals are in the bathroom. So somehow we need to get that bathroom vibe into yeah. our into our I, recording. It was interesting that Michael said the producer, they fought over that. So Michael must have like insisted on it. And then Tom Wilson was not into it, but did it anyway, right? Or or you know. Yeah. And yeah. I seem to recall Michael also mentioning something similar when they were recording, was it 16 tambourines? Jeff, he mentioned it too. Like it happened to be that in the recording studio there was a space, and I don't know if it was a kitchenette or a bathroom, but he recorded video uh, uh, audio in there too. He recorded vocals in there too because it was something about the room and the 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 way it carried. So I go, little known trick, folks. If you got a band and you want to record an album, look. That's kind of the, the great acoustics. That's kind of the lot. The lot. The lost thing with uh, all this home recording now is uh you're not in a big room where the engineer's like hey we should try this right. in this room or you know what i mean like um now you plug into somebody's ipad or whatever and <laughs> right. record yeah. you know yeah i'm just i'm just saying that that kind of thing used to be kind of <laughs> you'd experiment a little more when you're in the in a, in a big studio with a lot of yeah. with some options like that yeah and then uh how about that three days this this bugger three days yeah one of those days is mixing right like or no or two he said two days recording one day vocals and overdone and all from a bs yeah. answer you got to give credit to michael corsio for bsing that lisa fancher do you have an album of course i do <laughs> and what i love is michael corsio saying yeah you know so i just figured i'd write them out Okay, those are the people that I just go, do they never notice how good they are at what they do? That they just say, yeah, you know, I can, how many songs yeah. are on this? Uh, 10. 10? I can write 10 songs, yeah, no worries. Well, oh, and we're going to knock it out in three days. Look, two of them were from the single, one's an instrumental, one's a cover, so let's not give them too much. Oh, I'm, okay. just I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but still, yeah. I don't know. No, I no, found just that kidding. Really it, it's a great I record. I found that super interesting. And uh, we and, should mention this from the first one too. Like we talked a lot more about Lisa Fancher's influence in the first one. How she she came up with this cover. She came up with the name of H.B. Lovecraft. <laughs> she put uh, him in the She did everything. Yeah. She, the she, detail <laughs> of the hand. Yeah. That's the detail new. of the hand is incredible. That was, I, I never noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is so wild. But yeah, Lisa Fancher would make decisions and then tell the band what she did that was those were some of the anecdotes that came out in the first time yeah she uh, was like an old school record like executive but just on a smaller scale yeah yeah <laughs> i mean like uh hold on i'll come back to it but uh no, no. The, it was it was the the cover right uh, hold on i'm going back through my notes but um, yeah, Lisa would just kind of make decisions. She would do things without asking. That's what I wrote down. And then let and, the, uh, oh, yeah. 
just like when this was released, then Salvation Army goes away and it's re-released as before the three o'clock. That was Lisa Fancher saying, I'm going to reissue it in 1985. She just yeah. does it. And she, oh, she came up. Name. Yeah, she yeah, came, she came up, up with that before with the uh, spelt with the F-O-U-R. And Lisa yeah. Fancher's a genius. Let's face it. I, I heard Frontier Records is one of the, the best labels ever, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And then in one of the, in the previous gathering, I won't say recording, but the <laughs> this was supposed to be black and white. That's right. That's right. And then Lisa Fancher said, no color. Boom. It was the right decision. <laughs> I think I think this is what sets it apart. Yeah. I mean, not that we know we know it like this. So it's hard to like go back and imagine, you know, of course we're not gonna like it any other way, right? Yeah. At this point. Right. But um, but uh, yeah, you know what that you know that they he they mentioned things happen fast. They probably talked to Lisa. Went in the studio a month later. This album was probably in their hands a month and a half after that. You know what I right. mean? That's how that's right. how quick things would happen then. You weren't like, you have to do this setup. Like, well, the press needs it three months ahead of time. And you got to right. set this date right, 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 and blah, right. blah, blah. Like, this came out as soon as they got it or whatever. You know you know what I mean? Um, those are the and days. That was, and, the, and that was also the philosophy, I think, of Lisa Fancher of constantly striking while the iron was hot. Because when yeah. you think about those frontier releases, it was they were coming fast and furious, and I think it was a lot of because there was a local buildup, you know, thanks to Rodney, thanks to the local scene, these bands were getting a lot of play, and she was just like, okay, boom, come record yeah. album. Everything was fast and furious then, right? Like it was. I don't want to sound like an old guy, but you go to the record store literally every week, and there'd be a rack full of new records that you want to do. And I'm talking exactly. classic records, like you know what I mean, like. Yeah, it was an amazing time. Uh, one thing we didn't get into this time was Greg uh, Gutierrez becoming Lewis. The whole name thing. Are there are there any notes on that, Soraya? Uh, we've when we've talked to him before. So he's used Greg and then Lewis. And if memory serves, yeah, Greg, Greg, no wait, Greg is the middle name, and then he used it as a first name, and then he switched. Yes. Yes. I wonder, did he grow up, Greg? Was he Greg in high school? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, that I don't have no thought. Yeah. I'm thinking he probably was since he started as Greg and then, you know, went with Lewis after that. So, so speculating. Our, our little circle down here in, near San Diego, some of, he used to sign some of our records, G. Lewis. Gutierrez. So we used to call him Gluis because the G Lewis. <laughs> in our little circle, he was known as Gluis. So nice, nice. <laughs> Hopefully that probably good. You didn't bring that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> just between us three here. Yes. You know, just between us and no one else. No one's listening. No. Yeah. And um, then um, uh, I did want to mention for personally, I um, and we did talk a little bit about that. Lewis brought it up that. Um, that Michael had came up with the the locking groove at the oh, end yeah. of going home where you play it. And I think it, they were influenced by Sergeant Pepper, as they might have said, where right. at, the, at the end, and I think Lewis was telling us that Michael did some shakers and stuff. And then yeah, yeah. on the original pressing, the, the needle just gets stuck in this groove and it's yeah. an endless loop. I mean, <laughs> They didn't do that on the reissue for whatever reason. I don't know if nobody knows. Well, they didn't look, let's let's face it. They didn't notice. They didn't notice they were using the wrong version of Mind Guard. So much less are they paying attention to having a locked groove. 
um <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, well, then it, they, they, it's, go ahead ronnie no, no i just want to say david bowie aladdin saying has a great lock groove at the end of it too um there's a lot of them out there but go go ahead sorry all i was going to say is uh something that we weren't able to reiterate this time around but in the first go around is that this is going to get another re uh, another remastered release thanks to the great bill ingla who um and then we were given a date but i can't confirm it yet of april 23rd a, another record store day release yeah i think he i think that date is uh for the uh for uh, for the codown Borough codown is coming out and so is 16 tambourines so i um, had written down three o'clock in salvation army all remastered bill inglot has remastered the catalog so we'll we'll you know well we'll see we'll see how that happens i i don't exactly yeah but that's yeah. what we were told last time yes yeah yeah, yeah. and um, that that only includes up up through arrive without traveling I believe yeah 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 they 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 would own the other stuff and not the major label stuff right um so yeah oh yeah and then ronnie something that came up very unexpectedly at, uh, during our first session was when you asked lewis about his impressions of vermilion <laughs> which was i forgot that last time yeah yeah this time so um, do you, do you happen to recall lewis's response when <laughs> i do i i said lewis have you heard um, and what do you think of vermilion and he said i've not heard it um i certainly didn't buy it um and uh michael looked a little uncomfortable but um i personally i know that's a polarizing record but i'm obsessed with just the story of vermilion you um, are yes i i would i just the whole thing story how it came about um prince major labels um it, it's just one day I would like to do a, a comprehensive Vermilion um, episode. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So. That is something that we've definitely talked about. And we know that Danny is definitely interested in that. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I've mentioned it to Danny. I, I, I envision it to like the Grammy Museum with a, a panel. Oh. I don't think we can get, I don't think we can get booked there. But, but anyway, like, um, <laughs> yes. that's what I envision. Yeah. yeah. And if Prince were around, we could invite him to speak to it. Oh, absolutely. And no, there'll be a lot of good prints. You know, they cover if if the listeners don't know, they cover a print song on there. Um, they were on his label, Paisley Park. You know, I think uh, I think he kind of saved them to a certain extent from at least getting one more record out of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, not that it not that it, you know, was necessarily successful. Yeah, but that's, um, that's something I would definitely like to learn a little bit more about in that record being the end of the Salvation, or I'm sorry, as the three o'clock um in that um iteration right yes and, i mean they've shared that they they were it was very unhappy times there's some photos that they've shared during the vermilion times i'm i'm really intrigued to learn a little bit about that and what was going on with the band and all that so yes ho hopefully that will come someday so that was the end of michael michael's band and um we're what we're talking about today is the beginning right the pre three o'clock yes. days so anyways if this record's pretty easy to find i'm sure your record store has some of the, these reissues probably still around ronnie uh no no these are gone but but i think uh 
online yeah. is certainly if you, yeah, yeah. There's, there's still some floating around online i mean it was an addition of a thousand i believe so 1100 um, 1100 so so find it now folks but um they're, they're still they're still out there now yeah um, and to quote michael corsio instant collector's item yeah. <laughs> because of the use of the 45 version and a couple of other a couple of other things that we all know yeah. yeah but that is a true statement it's the first time that that mind gardens is on a 12 inch version so it, it's true it's true <laughs> even For if it was unintentional and a huge mistake i i just like i said in the first the first go around like i'm just shocked I've been sitting on this. I, 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 when the album came out, I messaged Jeff, who was in Denver, and said, "Oh my God, there's." A <laughs> I had no idea. I think yeah. I messaged you too, Soraya. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, you did. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my God. And then, no one has brought it up in the three o'clock group. I, and, and I even like have done comments when somebody's like, in the in the three o'clock group on Facebook, like, just got this reissue. I'm like, have you noticed the, uh, you know. So I didn't want, I was saving the information for this. You know, I did, I've never had busted it out in the group, even though I wanted to, because, you know, you guys know me. Um, yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not mad at the guys in the band. I, I, I consider this an executive uh, mistake, you know, so anyway. Yeah. And again, as we talked about, not these days, pressing plants are, they're overloaded. And if, and if you reject a test pressing, they wouldn't have made their Black Friday record store day, street day, it would be like, six months later and right. I think that has a lot to do with not only that but a lot of records that that might be of uh not of high quality new records that people might get these days yeah so, so. that if they were rejected the test pressing ronnie you're saying that they would get pushed back in the queue they wouldn't like throw them right back up front yeah i mean they'd get they'd probably get a little higher priority <laughs> but but it wouldn't be mm. we'll have them in two weeks yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean not not for Especially not for a, um, even a big indie label like Yep Rock. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so we'll see what happens in April with with more reissues. I doubt <coughs> Baroque. Baroque hoedown. Yeah, I, I think At these least. are going to be okay because uh, <laughs> Danny would would have gotten a test pressing <laughs> when everybody else did. Um, yeah, you know, as opposed <laughs> to Salvation Army where he got it later. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, anyway, Danny, Danny congratulated me for, for being the first to notice. Um, cause, yeah, because Danny was the one that noticed in, in the in the three o'clock camp, but it was too late by then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not being part of Salvation Army, he wasn't included in that test pressing approval process. Yeah, right? though, as we talked about in the first one, he was hanging around. He was uh, he was yeah. a fan and he visited in the studio and he was um, that's when he was uh, dating Lisa. And then, and, and, yeah, he had a. He had a first row seat to all this and was, was angling to get in there. <laughs> yeah. Which he did, as we know. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, you guys. Well, I thought this was, like I said, I thought the second go around was, uh, you mentioned, Ronnie, we got some information that we didn't get around to talking the first time around. So this was great. This is great. Yeah. I, I appreciate you guys joining. Thank again. you so much, Ronnie. Yeah. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me along as usual. I love yeah. uh I'm sorry if I talk too much, but um, <laughs> no, and no. I don't mean to interrupt you guys, but there are times where like something needs to be asked, <laughs> <laughs> and we appreciate it. We appreciate, yeah. yeah. All right, y'all. Thanks for thanks for having me, and I will uh, I will see you soon. All right, Ryan. Right. And, and I'll leave, and you can talk about me. Okay. All, All right. right. Bye, y'all. Bye. So, Soraya, did you hear Ronnie? 
I'm just I love it when his Texas accent comes out. Yeah, that comes every once in a while you hear that come through. All right, y'all. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Jeff, we learned a lot today. We did. We did. And um I think this story of the beginning, right? Is it's such a compelling story. And it tells excuse me it also tells a compelling tale of a transitioning scene in LA I mean think of how this band's sound you know when you think back Michael shared that quote from Johnny Blazing of we need a screamer we need somebody else you're too musical you're too melodic and I think you know, it just shows that this band kind of had its finger on the pulse of something transitioning. And, you know, in our first go around uh, on this topic, Lewis talked about his own evolution as a player, as a guitarist, of, you know, kind of beginning in a punk band, kind of learning Salvation Army, learning more transitioning to learning more to being much more experimental in three o'clock then into his other bands battery acid mary's danish um of really evolving and you know i think it's absolutely this it's true you know here we see the the beginnings of what we're going to see in the three o'clock yeah and and that is the development and evolution of them as a band, but also of especially Michael and Lewis as musicians. I I just think it's an interesting piece of this story. Absolutely. I totally agree. Yep. Yep. My gosh. You and I never tire of talking to either. (laughs) No. So, you know, it's always fun. All right, mi gente. Groove on, Paisley people. We recorded. We recorded it this time. It's all the scales, man. It's all scales.